2022 marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's first single. To commemorate this, Warners will be revisiting her back catalogue with selections curated by Madonna herself. For this series of Inside the Groove, I'm joined by industry experts, also Madonna fans, as we work through the singer's albums one by one, episode by episode, to discuss how they were created, what they achieved, and what we can expect from the upcoming re-releases. Madonna's eponymous debut album, Madonna, later repackaged and more commonly known as the first album, was released on July the 27th, 1983. Dominated by the sound of the Moog bass, the Lindrum machine and keyboardist Fred Zarr's astonishing synthesizer riffs, it's a collection of upbeat pop dance tracks capturing the sound of a young, talented performer on the cusp of stardom. As of 2020, it has sold 10 million copies to date, though surprisingly it has never reached number one in the charts. Spawning the singles Everybody, Holiday, Lucky Star and Borderline, plus burning up in some territories, this 8-track album proved to be a stunning debut which immediately propelled Madonna towards stardom, though its success was mild compared by what was to come. Six of the eight tracks were produced by Reggie Lucas, recorded at Sigma Sound Studios, New York, throughout 1982 and 83. But it was the last-minute addition of the Jellybean-produced Holiday, which would give Madonna her first international hit and become an anthem she would return to again and again throughout her career. Its original stunning black and white cover with simple typography still looks arresting today and I have the story of how that came about, along with details about the reissued cover artwork and the abandoned original cover shoot and design. It's hard to pick the best song from this album, but I'll be pouring some special attention on the song Lucky Star, playing you Madonna's raw, untreated vocal takes from these sessions at the end of 1982. Joined by music journalist and biographer Lucy O'Brien, fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price and graphic designer Peter Falloon, we're going to give you the whole story behind Madonna's debut and discuss what we might be able to look forward to in the upcoming reissue of this undeniable classic. So, for now, sit back, relax, because you know I'm going to make everything alright as we go Inside the Groove. My name's Edward Russell and I'm your podcast host and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the kind patrons whose donations have kept the podcast going and allow me to take time off to record all of Series 4 in one go. In return, they got the episodes early, way before everybody else, and they get extra content as well. So if you want to become a patron and be able to listen to all of Series 4 together, then just go to www.insidethegroove.co.uk. Welcome to Inside the Groove Series 4, Episode 1. A question I've been asked quite a bit lately is why are you changing the format? If it ain't broke, 
don't fix it? Well, the answer is, although the podcast is featuring a different song every week, there are two things that are standing in the way of continuing it that way. First of all, we're running out of songs. In order to be able to tell the story of the song, I need something, whether it's a demo or the multi-track or, or stories about the song itself. And unfortunately, there's just not enough stuff out there at present. The other reason is, well, quite frankly, each episode may focus on a particular song, but it does encapsulate the whole era around it. So even with a 40-year career, there's only so many stories you can tell. But I think the real reason is I'm so excited about the possible things that might happen in 2022 as we get the revisitation of Madonna's back catalogue. So one thing I didn't want to do with this series is retell old stories. If you've listened to the entire Inside the Groove so far, then you'll already know them. But if you need to check out the real story behind the first album, then I suggest you try the episode on Everybody, which talks about Madonna's career up until the point and including her first single release. The episode on Borderline goes into quite a lot of detail about her signing to Sire Records and the relationship working with Reggie Lucas on many of the songs. And the episode on Holiday talks about the completion of that album and starting to work with Jellybean on that final song, which of course was the one that broke her really, certainly in the UK. So I'm joined now by Lucy O'Brien, who many of you will know is an author. She wrote one of the best biographies on Madonna. It's called Like an Icon. And what's particularly special, I think, about this one is that she's talked to a lot of people from Madonna's career who have given new stories and new insights to exactly how she managed to achieve all her fantastic creative developments over the years. Lucy, I'd like to ask you... In some ways, you could say that that eponymous album was was twenty five years in the making. You know, from Madonna's birth upwards. Do you would you agree? And do you think that she always knew exactly what she wanted from from the very start? I think she did, but it um, took a little while to clarify. Talking to people who knew her at high school and her, and her boyfriends and. She was actually, could be a little bit shy, believe it or not, and was trying on several different identities. Like, you know, one day she was really into kind of drama and sort of like serious drama and, and not shaving her legs and kind of wearing headscarves. And <laughs> and then, you know, other times she'd be the cheerleader on the football pitch, you know, <laughs> really like it. And in a way, her music reflects that. I think it's those the both sides of her. You know, I think, each side is authentic and comes through in her music. I think she had an absolute um, love of theatre and also film. And, you know, as we know, Hollywood film, she studied it. She absolutely studied those icons, those 40s, 50s icons. Mm -hmm. um, and in lots of ways, film was really her first love. So she was, I feel, experimenting with a number of different, not just looks and musical styles, but identities in a way. The Madonna that we see on her debut album comes through really, really strongly. But it, I think it, you say 25 years, it took 25 years of experience and kind of honing who this kind of outlaw was because in a way you know I was, I was very struck you know interviewing people who knew her in the, those early days in New York she was a little bit of a misfit almost and quite an outlaw had this real spirit Peter Casperson who was one of her early managers he said 
you know, it was like East Village Polk meets Disco Ball. Mm. And she, she just encapsulated that kind of street style. Um, and I think that's what we hear on Madonna, on the debut album, um, throughout, um, that you get a real feel of New York and the club scene in the streets and um, her, her, and it's got such a propulsive rhythm throughout that whole album. You get, you get this sense of, I mean, Peter Casperson said she was like a pinball machine, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a silver ball in a pinball machine, just going every, ricocheting everywhere. And you get that feeling from this album, I think. She kind of had success straight away with it. I mean, I know it was a slight slow burn to start with, but once Holiday came out in the UK, she had success. She would have much bigger success in, in a year and two's time. Do you think she was surprised to it took off so quickly? The record took off really quickly. The lead up to it, she felt was painfully slow. <laughs> so yeah. the managers like um for a while there was Camille Barbone, who who was a really great um female manager who has spoke to me about how impatient Madonna was to like, hey, you know, I'm gonna be twenty-six and what's happening and mm-hmm. And she was primed and ready. Mark Kanins, who who produced that track, everybody, everybody. Mm. one that kind of launched her. It, it really encapsulated their energy that they had together. You know, she met him at the Danceteria, and it has that um, kind of full tilt energy to it. So now I'm joined by some extra guests to talk about the visuals that accompany the albums and whether you first experienced it on vinyl or cassette or CD or even as a download, you'll be familiar, I'm sure, with the brilliant cover artwork and perhaps the liner notes and also the beautiful single artwork that accompanied each of the releases. Now, I know a fair bit about it and I know some of the stories, but not as much as these two guys. I'm going to introduce them now. Um, I'm starting with, let me get this right, Jonathan Daniel Price, to use your full name. Is that right? So that's, I've had to go with the three names because there is, of course, another man called Jonathan Price with the same spelling and also has a Madonna connection. Well, he'd be surprisingly good for us, I believe. Yes, (laughs) as Madonna would say, it's ironic. (laughs) And, And yeah, so that Google meant that it was good to add in my middle name. And I have an online pseudonym, which people probably know me better as, which is Garcon. John. So you got in touch with me oh, quite some time ago now, but uh, you dropped me a line to say that you really enjoyed the podcast and were starting your own photography podcast. And I obviously looked at your work and I realised I actually knew a lot of your photos. Um, it's a lot of fashion photography, mm-hmm. but also let's, let's cut to the chase. Lots of men, men with beards. <laughs> so there's a lot of men photography. Yes, I do specialise in men's fashion, although I do a lot of different things. But I would say yeah, mainly portraiture fashion. And I did a book in 2012, which I think is what stuck in your mind called 100 Beards, 100 Days does what it says on the tin and and that really was what put me sort of took my career to another level okay so you're definitely an expert in photography are you and you're a bit of an expert in madonna and, and madonna photography then i guess yeah i think you know i imagine a lot of your listeners have all of the the gossip and know every single detail so there's a there's a level of you know wanting to say I don't know every single thing but I am a fan and of course he's influenced my work and my career because it's an artist with such a broad visual repertoire. 
And so this, the, my second uh, co-host is is Peter Falloon, who is a graphic designer, also the man behind the wonderful Inside the Groove logo and T-shirts. Hello, Peter. Hello. <laughs> is that a good introduction to you? I'm sure that's you can a, do a better version. That was a very good intro to me, but it's all truthful and all correct. <laughs> so what, what, what are your, what's your professional job? How do you um, fit into this? Professionally, I am an art director, and so I use that as a way of saying that I could do lots of different things. So... I started off in branding. I ended up doing music and video and album covers and stuff like that. And then I broke out on my own and set up my own company. And now I do a lot of branding for, and it makes me really happy, but I get to do a lot of work for charities, and gay charities and trans charities, which I have sort of quite a big passion for, but it's been really nice to sort of be able to do work for good people and for a good cause, which sort of counteracts all of the nasty, awful corporate things that I did in my back, back history. <laughs> well, we've all been there. So let's turn to Madonna, the first album, aka Madonna, eponymous album, that very first one. There's three versions, actually, because it got re-released, and there's also an unreleased version. But I want to start with the, the first one to hit the shelves, and in my opinion, the best one, and that is that iconic black and white cover with the short cropped hair. Well... This to me is the sort of ultimate starting point of any career. You know, you have what is described both apparently by Madonna and the photographer Gary Heary as an iconic image. I mean, doing a black and white photo as your album cover, even at that time, is quite striking. And it really does show a sort of longevity and classic image of the woman that we know now across many different visual representations. So Gary Heary is known for music photography and he shot lots of different artists like Paul Simon and Frank Zappa. But I think this is probably his most famous shoot and it's the one that everyone references and knows about. And there's lots of Madonna stories flying around with all of this artwork. But in this one, apparently, she was very hands-on. You know, she turns up to these shoots with a lot of energy, a lot of ideas. You know, she works closely with Maripol to create this look with all the bangles and the chains, which in that period became this real iconic, I guess. <laughs> I mean, we use that word iconic a lot, but this is this is the definition of icon, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, icon can also mean avatar, and this is uh, a representation of that period. What I like is you get that sort of white alabaster look that we will see a lot on her album covers and it's a very specific type of portraiture is there a name for it how would you describe it no but i think what it does is harken back to this period of 1950s and 1960s hollywood portraits and obviously that's something madonna has done a lot in her career reference an earlier time and it was this time in the 80s i guess when that was coming back around but she just managed to capture it so perfectly so the hair styling even is a sort of messy Marilyn and the poses, if you look at the contact sheets, which are out there, I mean, it's so wonderful to see the progression of the shoot, which is which is lovely. And then apparently she goes around to Gary's studio the next day, you know, with all this energy I was talking about, pushes right in and decides the cover image within five minutes. You know, it's it's this person who is very decisive and knows exactly how she wants to be represented. And also looking already a little bit Marilyn, I think. If you look at the photos from that Madonna album where she's biting the jewellery and pulling it across her face, it looks like a reference to Bert Stern photographs from The Last Sitting with Marilyn. And I think it's done beautifully and really updated in a great way, but there is a parallel there to the Marilyn look. And it's the first time we sort of see that so clearly in Madonna's career. And you were saying to me that you were kind of unhappy with the reissues? So... 
one of my bugbears about the Madonna album, the original, is the way they handled the artwork when it was released on CD. So I have the reissue CD. And, I, you know, I guess Warner Brothers were grappling with how to transition from vinyl to cassette to CD. But my CD has the back image from the vinyl, but just stretched horizontally. So it fits the dimensions of a CD. And so she's all stretched out. So, Peter, I want to talk to you about the graphics that are overlaid on it and the, the overall look of it. Very simple, very simplistic, quite different from other stuff around. I don't know if you agree or, or what you thought of, uh, of how it looked at the time. I think it was the first time we'd actually seen her face. So the first three singles were all, like, obviously, everybody was the montage, um, Burning Up was, like, the very comic strip one, and then Holiday was the black and white photo of a couple in the train. It I think the reason it worked so well is because it was like, bang, this is arresting, and we're now allowed to see what this woman looks like. So I think they didn't really need to do that much of the graphics. I, mean, I think it's clever that it's the first time that we've actually seen her name used in a smart way. So uh, hinging it all on the two O's, it's enjoyable to look at, and it's like that, that nice little positive and negative technique, one's in black, one's in white. It's just satisfying symmetry. But other than that, it's just incredibly clean and very simple but i think everything that she'd done up until then had been a bit chaotic yeah and it was like an artist finding their feet and i think because she was signed on that two single deal initially they didn't know what she was i think she did but they didn't give her the photographers or the the tools she had to go out and try and do it herself so like the first single was i think an illustrator called lou beach who was not connected to in any way I don't think and then the next one was Martin Burgoyne which was like a, a best friend so by the time she got to the album I think it was the first time that she was actually invested in and they were like we need something that cuts through and until that point it had all looked a little bit like a dance act mm-hmm. no one took the care or the time or the art direction over it it was just each single was a single and that was it they didn't know whether it would have longevity and this album cover just went back so this feels like an appropriate time to talk about the original photo shoot and, and indeed title, Lucky Star, yeah. for the album, which was Abandoned. And it, it's a look by Martin Burgoyne, but the photographer was someone otherwise related to Madonna. Can you tell me about that, Jonathan? Yeah, so it's Edo Bertoglio, I think <laughs> is how is, is the stilted way of saying it with the Scottish accent. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think... Looking at it now, we can all see why that wasn't selected as the artwork. It's funny because a lot of his work is Polaroids. He shot a lot of Polaroids, as did Maripol. And and I've got a Maripol book. Oh, wow. As in preparation for this discussion, I pulled out all of this early period of work. So I've got this this book, which has got some amazing photos of Madonna over the years. Ah, uh, and c- can we have the title for this? So it's called Maripolorama. Right. It's a combination of Maripol and Polarama. Mm-hmm. And it is out of print now, I think, but you can still get copies secondhand. And it covers basically the downtown scene in New York, probably from the early 80s to the early 90s. So in it, we've got images of Madonna from early stages, like her with the, the that iconic pink wig that is known. Was that the top of the pops wig? For like a virgin, yes. yes. Yeah. Up to the 90s with, you know, Blonde Ambition Tour period. And what I love about this is it just feels very human and Mm. 
like you could be part of that scene too. Oh, you know, with all these cool kids hanging around in the downtown with Jean-Michel Jean Basquiat and, and her dancers. And it's her sort of figuring out who she is and and creating this image for herself. And what I think that the, the Edo Bertoglio images don't capture is this energy. You know, if you look at a lot of his other work, it's it's fun and youthful. Whereas these photographs for the discarded shoot, it's almost like they were going for like a Grecian statue kind of aesthetic. Mm. And mm. she looks older than she is, actually. Mm, well, what do you think? Well, yeah, that's really interesting. I know that there was a concern at the time that Madonna at 25 almost 25, uh, was was a bit old to be a pop star. I know that sounds ridiculous now, but that was a concern that was going around at the time and it possibly was on Madonna's uh, mind as well. And for those of you that haven't seen that original Lucky Star cover, I mean, I have to say Google it. That's the best way to find out what it looks like because it, it's, it's not brilliant considering what a brilliant artist Martin was and the work that he would do in his short life. This is not the best. Peter, what would you I mean, have to say? I mean, you've got, like you said, she was 25. I think he was 23. And it's, yeah, I mean, if you look at my design when I was 23, you are not commercially aware. I can see that I, and I can I can literally picture the conversation and the excitement that must have gone on. Like there were roommates and friends, so something that they probably were working on in downtime. And it it doesn't look organised. It, it actually looks quite badly lit. I'm not sure like that you could do much with it graphically. And like Martin's work was very textural and like layered. And so how did he fit into this? And I think he sort of. Uh, adapted the photos in a way that wasn't beautifying or graphically pleasing and I just think it's inexperienced but mm -hmm. there's I I feel sad because it's like obviously there was a huge connection between them and he died very shortly after the release yeah. of the album so it's sad that it, he isn't part of her sort of canyon of album covers but it's great that we did well this is one of the reasons why I'm really excited about the upcoming Madonna directed biopic, because we're going to get these stories that we wouldn't otherwise have heard. I mean, I really want to know if she'll cover this and how she had to say no to Martin. I, it I must have been tough. I, I mean, like the heartfelt part of it, like I know that like there are reports that like, I don't think she's ever admitted to it, but she actually paid for his healthcare, supported him all the way through to the end. So it was obviously such an important friendship to her. And then like in this life, like song, he was yeah. only 23. Yeah. Yeah, he was. And it's such a young age. But I, I hope that he knows that like his work fits into her, her can canon perfectly. And you can see what they were trying to achieve together. And I think it was the first time she had an art director artist relationship. It was like a learning curve for her. She saw what she wanted to generate or what she wanted to portray. But I think she got better at finding the talent to do it. Doesn't mean that anything that Martin did was wrong. It's just they're both so young and you make mistakes. And a grown up who worked for record industry came in and went, no, it yeah. needs to be a clean, simple image. And that's what we ended up with. Indeed, indeed. And of course, the album got re-released off the back of the success of the Like a Virgin album, which came out the end of 1984. The first album was born, and that's a rebranding or a repackaging, a reissue of Madonna with a whole new look, much more in line with the Like a Virgin album. And a different photo shoot was used. Jonathan, I don't know very much about this photo shoot. What can you tell me? Well, it's, it's interesting because this one is quite hard to find out information about. And I've not heard a huge amount 
through the grapevine. It's by a photographer called George Holy, but I can't find much else about his work. But I can see why they rebranded it. I mean, if you think about this period of time where she's had successful singles and and moving on to a new campaign and they're trying to sort of re-energize these early hits that maybe didn't break through in, in a wider mass market. This new image of her is uh, a lot more aligned to the craze of the young girls in that period in the 80s that were all sort of the copycats of Madonna. So we've got, by this point, the strings in the hair and the crucifixes out, and she's really cemented, which you can kind of see what she started with that Madonna cover with Gary Heary, but it's pushed it even further forward. I mean, it's so 80s. I love it. It's so 80s. The colors, the fuchsia lips. It also looks a little bit like it's been set on a longer exposure. So if you look closely at the image, there's a slight movement, you know, at the lips mm. and the light in the eyes. So it's got a softness to it, which it's, I really love. It's a very 80s look. I mean, obviously, because it is 80s. And then of. on the back cover, you've got a sort of overexposed face all blown out, which I think she is coming back around to loving in today's today's lighting but but yeah it's it's also a lot about the styling in this period it's very you know that ragamuffin downtown look which was then being packaged and sold on to the masses you know and of course it it was the start of the corporate era of madonna i suppose if that's a way of explaining it because it had the same font as the like a virgin album it had a similar sort of look but it really became sort of what we know of madonna of the 80s peter me being the age that I am, it's the album that I know from cassette. So I have a very, like, <laughs> quite a big love for it. So I was quite surprised when I saw the original as I was an, an older person. It's like the first one, I, I agree. It's like that, that's the Madonna that I knew and I recognized her. And I think it, it, it's got that look and appeal of it that she was able to turn into a brand. So I think like you say, the Like a Virgin was such a success. They then needed to retrofit it graphically mm -hmm. back to her earlier songs. So it was, it was like, it's the first time she, she managed a visual connection graphically. Clever, just change the title, but move it onto the previous album. And I think it worked for that reason. I think it's the first bit of like brand consistency that was evident in her career, whether it came from record label or from her we don't know, but it obviously is like the start of understanding the value of the name and the mark and keeping that consistency of look and feel. But yeah, I think as a, I don't know, would you call it a repackage? Because it, it, yeah, it didn't... Yeah, I suppose so. The word brand wasn't really used in that way then, was it no. really? So, so repackage. Yeah, I, I, they didn't really understand the value of it back then. It, it definitely had a presence and something that the first one, as, as much as it was like, a phenomenal image this is the madonna that i know on the insert to that vinyl they've still used the original insert from the other album and yeah. it's interesting to think about that combination because actually on the insert image she had started to take that direction especially with this whole conversation around her belly button and and the ragamuffin style i was talking about and also on that insert the photographer is still credited as gary heary even though the cover isn't. Mm -hmm. And same mm -hmm. with the graphic design apps. Mm -hmm. The relationship that was ongoing that was established with Like a Virgin was one designer, but the lady who did the original, she'd been in-house at like CBS for most of her career and had done relatively well. But she set up her own company, a lady called um, Karen Goldberg. Similar age, Madonna Khan. I've never been able to work out if they met or knew one another or whatever, but one of her first jobs was the Madonna album 
I mean, <laughs> to be able wow. to say that you did that is absolutely phenomenal. But based on my, what I can see of her work, she did the holiday cover and the original Madonna album. But yeah, it, it, it got handed off like and came like an internal thing. And from then on, I think it was very sharp. So once they had gone in-house, I think they realized she was an artist, not mm-hmm. just a, a throwaway pop mm-hmm. star. So yeah, I think people started taking a little bit more TLC over Madonna. It's funny looking at the first album and the Madonna album side by side, because the first album to me says pop star appealing to young people. And the Madonna cover says sort of a rock artist almost, who is a more long-term career artist. And what I love about this period particularly is we see that transition just through the single cover. So like you're saying, Peter, you know, they, it's a sort of a mishmash and it doesn't fully make sense with who she is as an artist, but I feel like they're figuring out her place in, in the world. And those early ones from the early 80s, you know, everybody burning up holiday, especially burning up where you do see some small images of her face. They really fit with the time period, but they don't scream Madonna. And then by the time you get to Lucky Star, where her face is more visible, despite the funky graphics over the top of it, that's when you see that she's stepping into sort of being a leader of image rather than following what's happening around her. It was a learning curve. So like, she didn't have the money behind her. The two single deal made it very hard for anybody to do anything on any level of budget. But the... They're also mishmashed, the first um, five or six covers. But that I, I now look back and it's like, well, actually, for a learning curve and for somebody who's developing, it's quite exciting. I don't think any of them ever managed any synergy with the visual that she then went off and did in the video, which is always a little bit of a sort of a bugbear. But again, video was relatively new. So like Burning Up was conceived at one end of the spectrum. And then the single idea was obviously conceived in, in a bedroom with Martin. So yeah, I, I love them in retrospect, but there's no cohesiveness. So you couldn't look at it and go, oh, that's, oh, that's Madonna, that's Madonna. Cause they're all very different and not seeing a face until the album cover. And then we get some very weird photo treatments of like, I think the lucky star one, she's, there's various versions of it, but it's, it's cluttered and a, a bit illustrative as well. And I, I think it's borrowed from like the same shoot. We got a version for Borderline as well that is similar mm. to the first album. It's all over the place, but she was releasing singles in the US that weren't singles in the UK and vice versa. And so it trying to get two record companies on two different sides of the Atlantic to get it right. Yeah, you had a phone phone machine and a fax machine and that was it. So being able to have consistency back in 1983 I don't think was a huge concern, but to look back at it now, you can see like five or six really good examples of graphic design in, in its, in its finest. So there's montage ones that came a bit later. I think the borderline one was a guy that worked with banana armor and did a lot of their stuff as well. So haven't we all? So to, to wrap up on, on discussions of this, then I like to think that people go away and then start Wikipediaing stuff because they're interested in it. Who are the people or what are the things you think they should look up afterwards? I mean, Martin Burgoyne, her artist friend, definitely. You mentioned Maripol, uh, Jonathan. Who else do you think people can deep dive into a bit further after listening to this? One is the Lucky Star discarded images by Edo Bertoglio. Actually, there's another image he's taken of her, which is one of my favorite photos 
ever of Madonna, which is her with a cocktail and a cigarette, and she's tipping the cocktail, and it's sort of uh, coy and very Madonna. And I mean, for me, that could have been single artwork. I love that photo. So that's maybe a better representation of his work and his connection to Madonna, probably just taken at a party or something. It's not professional. Another one is recently, a few years ago, a photographer, Richard Corman, found some Polaroids that he'd taken of her on her rooftop and in her apartment from 1983. And that, again, is a lovely representation of the scene in New York and how free and how much fun she was having in that time period. I really like those photos. And then the final one is a single photograph by a photographer called Amy Arbus. And she released a book about 15 years ago called On the Street. This was hugely influential in my decision to start doing street photography. I was about 18 or 19 when I found this book. And she's the cover image. There's only one image of her in the book, but it really so typifies her in this period. She's got a sort of dirty, moth-eaten, vintage man's oversized coat. She's got the scarf wrapped around her neck and the messy hair with mousse in it. And I just love how beautiful she looks and how simple and striking the image is. Brilliant. Peter, any suggestions? Mine's a bit of a curveball, but one of like sort of my things that I really wish had happened, like she was in that whole sort of late 70s, early 80s New York, and one of her friends was Keith Haring. And I think there could have been the most amazing coming together of two great artists. They sort of messed around with one another. Like he he did clothes for shoots. He's the guy who did the, the skirt in Borderline with the amazing neon green. And he was responsible for the outfit in the pink wig um, on top of the pops that we know from Like a Virgin. They had a creative relationship and they obviously had a lot of love for one another, but I don't know why it never melded into some sort of graphic collaboration and i think it's something that would have been phenomenal you sort of see it hinted at but it never actually got realized but i i, I would say go back and have a look at some of his stuff a, a lot of his sketchbook work and things that he was doing he would take awful horrible headlines about her and graphicize them so it was almost taking the negative and make it into a positive. I just love that. Like as a friend, mm. it's it's a bit like clapback. It's like you might say it about her, but I'm going to doodle all over it and make it into a masterpiece and sell it for thousands of pounds. So they didn't do anything officially, but I love the fact that they had a creative relationship. And again, somebody that we lost too soon, but go back and look at his work because I think as a, as a pairing, it would have been phenomenal. Indeed. Uh, thank you so much, guys. And of course, next episode, we'll be talking about Like a Virgin, which of course spawned the re-release of the first album. So what can we expect on the reissue, the deluxe special edition version? Well, hopefully we shall see a compilation of the various remixes alongside the original album as well. And that could include the instrumentals and dub mixes that we're already familiar with. Plus, well, we don't know what we don't know. There could be other remixes that were commissioned or not used or or versions of those well-known remixes that could sit alongside it. And hopefully we'll finally get a CD slash digital release of Jelly Bean's remix of Burning Up, which was included on the original LP pressing. And there's also Rusty Egan's remix of Everybody, which had a UK release. That should make the cut too. And it's possible perhaps even probable that there is more in the vaults that we just don't know about. 
In terms of demos, well, there are various work in progress takes which have surfaced on the internet over the years. Unmixed versions of the songs from Sigma Sound Studios from the latter half of 1982 and the early months of 1983. And they tell an interesting story about the growth of songs such as Burning Up, which was, as of three demo versions from November 1982 that have surfaced, called I'm Burning Up for a while. No one has ever hinted of any unreleased songs from this era, but once again, it's that phrase, we don't know what we don't know. Who can say what else is lurking in the vaults, which perhaps even Madonna herself has forgotten. But one song that didn't make the cut and is definitely of interest is Ain't No Big Deal. It was dropped from the album when it was recorded by another artist. And this Stephen Bray pen track is rumoured to exist in various forms, including a version by Mark Kamens, one by Jelly Bean, one by Stephen Bray, and of course, the Reggie Lucas version, which finally made it out there as the B-side of Papa Don't Preach in 1986. Whether Warners have the those in their vaults or indeed the rights to release them, I mean, it's possible, for example, that the Brave version doesn't belong to them. This remains to be seen. Similarly, the original demo of Holiday does exist, written by Lisa Stevens and Curtis Hudson and recorded by their group Pure Energy. That version resides at the Copyright Office at the Library of Congress in Washington. So, could that make the cut? Again, we don't know. And what will the cover artwork be? Will it be the 1983 black and white cover? Will it be the 1985 The First Album cover? And maybe we'll finally get a high-quality version of that unused Martin Burgoyne-designed Lucky Star cover. Talking of that song... Lucky Star, take one. Lucky Star was released as a single in the UK on 9th of September 1983, her second release in that territory, contradicting anything that Bridget Jones may have told you. Here's a demo from February of 1983. Produced by Reggie Lucas for the album and featuring synthesizer riffs by Fred Sarr and Dean Gant, it's one of the standout tracks from the LP. It's also notable for being one of the very few songs where Madonna is credited as the sole writer. But is that actually the case? In an interview for Madam X Radio, which was a short-lived project back in 2019, Madonna recalled writing this song with Reggie Lucas in her apartment in New York, with him sat there on guitar and her coming out with a melody and lyrics. So not wanting to detract from the fact that she is capable of writing a pretty fine pop song on her own, 
What adds to the confusion is the other track on the album, Physical Attraction, which is credited just to Reggie Lucas, but wasn't always. At various points, it's also been credited to Madonna and Reggie Lucas. So what's going on here? In a book from 2011 called I Want My MTV, the uncensored story of the music video by Rob Tanabam and Craig Marks, music executive Jod Kaftan, who is often credited as being the man behind Madonna's career, or at least the starting of it, said that around this time Madonna was sued and needed some money and he told her let me release Lucky Star and I guarantee you'll sell enough records to pay that off. So it's quite possible that they changed the credit to be solely Madonna so that she would earn more money from that and in return Reggie was given the sole rights on physical attraction. That would certainly support Madonna's own memory of writing the song together with Reggie. Let's break down what we can hear on the multi-track recording and interestingly, there is a live drum hi-hat. So that's been overdubbed along with here the Lindrum synth hi-hat. And of course the Lindrum machine itself and that beautiful ARP bass. And of course what stands out so much about these early recordings are those, well they are frankly out of tune vocals but bloody hell the passion. Iris Agal's guitar. And this is one of the elements that was added to. What Joni Bean said was, she was unhappy with the whole damn thing, so I went in and sweetened up a lot of the music, adding some guitars to Lucky Star, some voices, some magic. I just wanted to do the best job I could do for her. When we went back and played Holiday or Lucky Star, you could see that she was overwhelmed by how great it all sounded. You wanted to help her, you know, as much as she could be a bitch. When you were in the groove with her, it could be very creative. Don't forget to check out the merch. There are some brilliant Inside the Groove t-shirts and mugs, heaps of different designs, inspired by the history of Madonna and her musical collaborators. Brilliantly designed by Peter Falloon, AKA The Bear, there are new ranges coming all the time. They're tasteful, clever, and high quality, just like Madonna herself. Head over to www.insidethegroove.co.uk and click on merchandise. Thank you. So we've come to the end of this first episode of the new format of Inside the Groove and I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've found some new Madonna fans to listen to and be educated by. Next episode we'll be doing it all over again but this time with a course like a virgin. Until then, bye for now. Bye for now.